One does not need to be a studied sociologist or even a particularly careful observer of culture to know that our society is polarized. It's as polarized as I've ever experienced it in my lifetime, left versus right. And of course, this video is gonna be going out live Sunday morning, September 19th. So tomorrow is election day. We've just come through this month long campaign, which itself uh, polarizes people. We've got social media that further polarizes people. Some of you have asked me if I've watched the uh, docudrama on Netflix called The Social Dilemma, which I have, which is really quite interesting talking about these very uh, powerful algorithms that uh, are used by the social media platforms, YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and so on. And, and they're very powerful um, recommendation machinery so that what we're, the content that we're receiving is like this ever narrowing stream of content that really serves to um, confirm our pre-existing biases. And it, it, it's like, we're more interested in having our opinions confirmed than we are in pursuing truth. There are climate change uh, deniers and there's climate change believers. And, and talk about COVID, right? There are people who think that COVID is this overblown thing with all kinds of governmental overreach. And then there's others who think that it's this very serious public health crisis that we need to, to uh, respond to very carefully. And think about the way different churches have responded to COVID. Some churches have kind of really uh, thumbed their nose to protocols and to restrictions, while other churches have, have um, you know, exercised an abundance of, of caution. And we've seen some, you know, really polarizing um, shifting things, even during these months of COVID. It wasn't all that many months ago, early in COVID, when, you know, probably all of us saw that, that video of the murder of George Floyd. That was like the most merciless thing I think I've ever seen. And that propelled the Black Lives Matter movement, which itself has had a polarizing impact. And of course, later in COVID, as we began to... Um, hear news of the discovery of these unmarked graves of indigenous children at the sites of former residential schools. And that kind of propelled the Every Child Matters movement, which itself has had some polarizing effect. We're polarized over so many things. We're polarized over masks. Gina and I had somebody come to our front door at our house in Concordon to call us sheep. Not because sheep are so cute and lovable, but because they're stupid and uh, just kind of blindly complicit. And so we were being called sheep for, uh, because our church in Concordon was observing COVID protocols. Even, even, even just a, a few weeks ago here, after one of our in-person services, I was confronted by a person who, who said that because I was wearing a mask, I was covering up the image of God. And of course, the image of God has nothing to do with our outward appearance. If it did, we'd all be uh, nudists. So I'm glad that's not the case, but there's just been, I don't know, people have just felt kind of emboldened to, um, to judge and to, to shame. Not to mention vaccines, right? There's so much polarization over vaccines. And as I already mentioned, tomorrow's election day. And so there's been all kinds of 
partisanship, which is intentionally designed to be polarizing. And you know, if we think about the last, what's COVID, 19 months we've been in this thing now, it's not been a good time for Christians on social media. Like at a time when Christians should have pulled together in solidarity, in unity, in Christ, um, you know, identifying and, and celebrating our common, our commonality in Jesus and presenting that on social media. Instead, there's been division sown. It's, there's been judgment. There's been shaming. There's been conspiracies. There's been these very um, uh, inflexible opinions presented on social media. Not to try and, and get a dialogue going, but really just for the purpose of moral grandstanding to get likes and shares and, and so on. It's not been good. Well, this is Reset, all right? This is our new teaching series. It's six weeks long. And what I want to encourage all of us to do, all of you who are watching and including me, I want us to try intentionally to rise above the polarity, to rise above the, uh, the labels that we assign to each other. And we even do that in the church. We, you know, we've got these Christian labels, evangelical Christian, conservative Christian, neo-Orthodox Christian, um, you know, uh, reformed Christian, and so on. We've got all these labels. Well, can we agree that for six weeks at least, maybe even longer, but for six weeks for sure, can we just decide that we're not gonna go with any of these categories? That we just wanna transcend these labels, transcend these polarities? And wherever you might place yourself on, like on any spectrum, including the theological spectrum, can we just agree, as followers of Jesus, for six weeks, can we just agree that the teachings of Jesus are normative for all of us? Can we just get, can we get on board with that? Can we agree to that, that the teachings of Jesus are normative for all of us? And some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, we can, but even the teachings of Jesus themselves need to be interpreted. Um, and I guess kind of there's a sense in which that is true, but I think that is actually largely not true because you know, the teachings of Jesus are pretty clear. Like if you read Paul, read the epistles of Paul or like read Romans, um, there's, some, there's some exegetical work to be done there to get to the meaning. Uh, but when you read Jesus, like when Jesus says something like, hey guys, love your enemies. We don't need to do a whole lot of exegetical backflips to get to the meaning of what Jesus is talking about. If you take time to read the words of Jesus, which unfortunately most Christians don't, but if you did, what you find is that the, the teachings of Jesus, the words of Jesus are quite clear. He's quite specific. It's quite to the point. Gandhi uh, once said, everyone knows what Jesus taught, except for Christians. On another occasion, Gandhi was reported to have said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. You know, a few weeks ago, we talked about church history. We did a little, a, a very quick walk through 2000 years of church history. And, 
And, uh, you know, for the, for the last 1700 years of church history, at least, I would say the church has been trying to get away from Jesus, trying to distance itself from Jesus. Like if you think of those times when the church was in charge politically and had power in those times where the church wanted to engage in violence and engage in war, whenever the church felt that was in its best uh, interests, um, well, the church would jump over Jesus and run back to Moses or run back to Joshua to try and, and validate or to somehow try and justify violence. And violence is just so darn practical. But is, but is practicality Lord of your life or is Jesus Lord of your life? Well, we had read for us Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47. And in verse 42, we read these words, they, that's the uh, first uh, followers of Jesus in this brand new church in Jerusalem, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, what does that phrase mean, the apostles' teaching? We want to keep in mind that in Acts chapter 2, the uh, context is Pentecost. The year is somewhere around 30 AD. And in 30 AD, none of the New Testament is written. So whatever the devotion to the apostles' teaching meant, it wasn't referring to the New Testament. It's not like these early believers are having Bible studies on, on the book of Galatians or Colossians or, or Philippians or whatever. None of that is written. The fact that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching means they devoted themselves to what the apostles taught about Jesus, including the very words of Jesus, the recollections of the apostles about the words of Jesus from their time uh, that they spent with him. It's a devotion to the apostles' teaching about Jesus. Even in Acts chapter two, we find Peter getting up and preaching a sermon. And it's a very famous sermon, probably, maybe it's the second most famous sermon in, in history after Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I, I'm not sure, but, but uh, his sermon really kind of uh, officially begins in verse 22 of, of chapter two. And he starts by saying, fellow Israelites, listen to this. And then the next three words are the subject matter of his sermon. And the next three words are Jesus of Nazareth. That's the subject. He says, you put him to death, but God has raised him back to life. Validating that everything he said, everything he said is absolutely true. Reset. Uh, by the way, we're... Uh, as you probably know, we are going to be having small groups that are going to be meeting this afternoon and, and uh, each Sunday afternoon for six weeks. But I wanted to say to any of you who, who won't be here or who, or who can't be here, maybe you don't even live near here. If any of you would be interested in a small group experience where we drill down on this reset material, drill down on the Acts 2 material, um, we can do that by Zoom. If that's of interest to you, if you want to email me at chris at sobblechurch.ca, let me know that's of interest to you. Uh, we'd be happy to set that up. So this series is called Reset, but just because it's called Reset does not mean that we're looking backwards. We're not doing church looking in the rearview mirror. We're not looking back and trying to figure out how to recreate 2019. We're not looking back, trying to figure out how to create 30 AD. In fact, when you look back and try to recreate what was, that is a rather idolatrous pursuit. We're looking forward. But as we're looking forward, we're asking the question, what would it mean for us to press reset and to recommit ourselves to taking seriously 
the words of Jesus. When I was 18, I went off to Bible college. I've told you that before. But on day one of Bible college, there I am, and I've got my brand new suit on that was ordered through the Sears catalog. It's the one with the reversible vest, which was uh, pretty cool. You didn't want to be near any open flames with this particular suit. but And I was there with my brand new Bible. And it was a, a King James Bible. This school was kind of a, a King James oriented sort of uh, school. I had my brand new King James Bible. And the professor on day one, well, he's, he's wandering through the rows, stopping by each student's desk, just meeting the students. And he gets to my desk and he happens, and, and, and we uh, greet each other, and he happens to see my brand new Bible. And he says, oh, what edition is that? And so I, I showed it to him. And then he asked the question, is that a red letter edition? And if, if you're not familiar with a red letter edition, what that means is that in, in some Bibles, the words of Jesus are in red type, whereas the rest of uh, the Bible is in black type. So he asked me, is, is mine a red letter edition? And I very proudly say, yes, it is. And he says, well, that's too bad. And I said, why? In fact, he went on to say um, that he wasn't really excited about me bringing that Bible to class to use. And his reasoning was that when you um, read the words of Jesus and they're in red, that it in his opinion, it kind of gave the impression that the words of Jesus were somehow um, more authoritative uh, than the words of Paul or Moses or Joshua or John. In fact, this professor taught that scripture is essentially, like it's essentially flat, that no one part of scripture is any more authoritative, any more important uh, than any other part. And so I stopped using that Bible uh, I got myself a, a new Bible and it was all the type was in black, right? Signifying equal importance, all the words weighed the same. Well, I've since uh, got myself, this, this, this Bible here is the most recent one I've purchased and it's not very new, it's like maybe three years ago, but this one um, has the words of Jesus in red and I like that. I like reading the red letters of Jesus, partly because in those words, there's very little confusion. When Jesus speaks, as recorded in the Gospels, it's very clear, it's very direct. Jesus is surprisingly specific and clear. And you know, I've mentioned that um, I grew up in Baptist circles and I went to a Baptist Bible college, but I, I don't think I've ever told you that I actually spent the first 40 years of my life in exclusively Baptist circles. And as I think back on that, and I've got wonderful Baptist friends and wonderful Baptist family, but as I think back on that, I, I realized that in terms of the preaching that I was exposed to, in terms of the teaching that I was exposed to, um, the vast majority of the preaching and the teaching was the words of Paul way more than the words of Jesus. It was almost like we never really got around to the gospels. We never really got around to the words of Jesus in particular that we find in the gospels. But I agree with Tony Campola when he said a few years ago that there's a shift taking place. And I think it's a good shift. And it's a shift that's not taking place among old old guys like me, but it's taking place among younger followers of Jesus, millennials and Gen Z. Um, and it's a shift away from the epistles, 
Not that the epistles are unimportant because they are, but it's a shift away from the, um, from the epistles. You know, when you focus on the epistles, like the epistles of Paul, for example, you, that's where you, you get good doctrine, good theology. That's what Paul's epistles will do. But there's a shift taking place where people are, younger people in particular, are realizing that it's not enough to simply have right doctrine. You can have right doctrine and be a total jerk. This week I had the opportunity to have lunch with the executive director of our denominational family, the Be in Christ Church of Canada. And actually, I spent all day today in uh, Oakville. Uh, this is actually, we're actually recording this on Thursday evening and uh, spent all day in Oakville. This was our first uh, in-person pastors meeting since COVID began. And it was wonderful being with, with family. It's a family. I love it. One of the things I love best about our denominational family is there is an emphasis on lifestyle more than just um, theological propositions. Now, don't, don't get mad. Don't turn the dial. Theology is important. Okay, let me, let me be clear on that. It's very important that we have right thinking on Scripture. It's very important that we understand doctrines like justification by faith. It's very important that we understand what Paul is teaching when he talks about being filled with the Spirit. All of those things are very, very important. What to know, how to think, what to believe, very important. But if you move away from the epistles of, of Paul or Peter or James um, to Jesus, to the words of Jesus, you, you find a very different emphasis. When you read the words of Jesus, it does not read like Paul. You know, you think about Paul writing the book of Romans, it's one brilliant argument on top of another brilliant argument. It's very theological. When you read Jesus, it's, it's not like that. You know, we all know Christians who have great theology, who have very robust uh, doctrines on all points of theology. And they, they've, they've got it all just kind of uh, figured out. And obviously there's nothing wrong with that at all. But when you read the words of Jesus, the emphasis is really on lifestyle. A lifestyle that fits um, and is consistent with his teaching. And the teaching of Jesus, like the central uh, theme of the teaching of Jesus is the kingdom of God. Jesus came. Think about how many times he talked about the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Jesus came to announce the good news of a kingdom. And in his teaching, Jesus clearly spells out what kingdom life looks like. He clearly spells out uh, you know, uh, what kingdom people uh, do with their money, what kingdom people do when they face violence, what kingdom people do um, when, when they're confronted by enemies. Jesus is very, very specific about, uh, about teaching a kingdom lifestyle. Now, we are Sobel Christian uh, Fellowship. Christian, Christian fellowship. And, and that word Christian is a, it, it's, it's a big word. And I think it's, I, I, I think we need both a robust 
theology that we get from you know, studying the epistles, but we also need to focus on that lifestyle that Jesus teaches us. You know, you read Paul, like in Romans, as I've mentioned, and he'll say, you know, know this, know that, believe this, believe that. Then you read the words of Jesus and Jesus says, follow me. Now, some of you might be thinking, you know, Higginson, you're, you're kind of skating on thin ice. It almost sounds as if you're elevating the words of Jesus above Paul, above the Old Testament, above the rest of the New Testament. If you think that, that that's what I'm doing, I want you to know you're exactly right. I am, in fact, doing that. In fact, I don't think, I don't think you can really understand the Bible until you first come to grips with Jesus, until you first say yes to Jesus, until you first surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. It's only when you come to grips with Jesus, who himself is the author and finisher of our faith, that you can begin to understand the rest of scripture. Yeah, you can read the content, but you won't get it without Jesus. Think about um, Jesus on that one occasion where he's talking to the Pharisees and he says, you know what, you guys, you, you guys know the scriptures better than anybody and yet you don't know me. So what good is it? What's, what's the value? Or think about the, you know, the story of Philip in um, Acts chapter 8 and uh, Philip sees this kind of bigwig guy in his chariot riding along. And Philip can see that he's got a scroll open. It's the scroll of Isaiah. He's actually reading Isaiah chapter 53. Philip runs alongside this guy's chariot and says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, absolutely not. How can I, unless somebody explains this to me? And so Philip jumps into this guy's chariot and begins in that very passage, Isaiah 53, to explain Jesus to him. You see, Jesus says the whole Old Testament is all about him. You can't understand it until you come to grips with Jesus. I come from a fairly large family and uh, an awful lot of my family go to church. And all of my family who go to church go to Baptist churches. And um, as I mentioned, I'm the only one in my family that is not part of a Baptist church. And I was for the first 40 years of my Life and I've got wonderful Baptist friends and my family are wonderful Baptist people. But we do have lots of uh, conversations. And, you know, they will say things like, you know, we've got to be Bible-centered. And I'll say, no, we've got to be Jesus-centered. They'll say, you know, we've got to follow the Bible. And I'll say, no, we've got to follow Jesus. We read the Bible so that we can follow Jesus. They'll say, well, the scripture is our sole authority. And I'll say, no, Jesus is our authority. You know, Jesus himself said that. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, you know the great commission passage, passage those, those famous last words of Jesus, his marching orders to the church before he ascends back to the Father. What does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is our authority. Now, let me be clear. I believe that the Bible is inspired, all of it, divinely inspired. All of the Bible is inspired, but not all of the Bible is equally authoritative for all time. That is a hugely important distinction to grab hold of. Jesus in uh, John chapter five and verse 36, 
I think that was one of the verses that was in the quotes just before the sermon time here. And John said, uh, I have a testimony that is weightier than that of John. He's referring to John the Baptist. So Jesus is saying, my words, my testimony, my teaching is more important. It weighs more. It's heavier than that of John the Baptist. And elsewhere, Jesus had already said, specifically in Matthew 11, 11, he had said that of all the prophets leading up to Jesus, John the Baptist was the greatest. He was the greatest of all the prophets leading up to Jesus. So do the math on that. You know, Jesus said, I have a testimony weightier than that of John, and John was the greatest of all the apostles leading up to Jesus. All the Bible is divinely inspired, but it doesn't all have equal weight. You know, uh, something that is, I'm not sure it's unique to our Anabaptist um, culture, but when we approach scripture, we do it through a Jesus lens. We look at scripture through the lens of Jesus. It's all about him. And secondly, um, we, we look at, at the person of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the example of Jesus as being absolutely definitive for our understanding of God. If you wanna know what God is like, Look at Jesus. Don't go running back to Moses. Don't go running back to Joshua. Look at Jesus. Jesus Christ is the definitive expression of what God is like. You've probably read the uh, Sermon on the Mount. I know Pastor Dave did a really great series on the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, one of them was replayed uh, quite recently when we had our service on the beach. And in the Sermon on the Mount, you read, Jesus says some things like, well, you, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. You know, Moses said uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, but I'm saying this. A new commandment, right? Jesus came and he put a ribbon around the old covenant and put a bow on it. It's finished. He's come to inaugurate uh, a new covenant and to announce a kingdom. And it's not like the Old Covenant 2.0, it's new. In fact, we've got some people who are gonna be studying the book of Hebrews um, every week. And the author of Hebrews gets very specific, uses some very pointed language in describing the Old Covenant, words like obsolete and useless. Jesus has come to do something new. Jesus said, you know, Moses said an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, but I, I, I say that Moses said, don't commit murder, but I say, Jesus says, I say, um, even if somebody says raka to their brother or sister, you know, by the way, what, what does raka mean? Raka means to, um, to dehumanize someone, to detract from their worth. Jesus says when you detract from somebody's worth, it's, it's in the realm of murder, Jesus says. You know, every time we... Um, Every expression of racism is raka. That's, that's detracting the worth from someone simply because their skin is a different color or they've got a different ethnicity or origin than we do. That's raka. Jesus puts it in the same category as murder. Um, sexism, when you um, 
disrespect and detract the worth of women and girls. That's raka. Jesus puts that into the same category as murder. Homophobia, where you look at somebody who places themselves somewhere on the LGBTQ spectrum, and you look at them and you treat them like they're some kind of an inferior species. That's raka, that is dehumanizing, that is to detract from their worth. Jesus puts that in the same um, category as, as, as murder. Raka is, is to diminish the dignity and the worth of another human being through prejudice or through discrimination or through um, segregation or you know, through uh, assimilation as in the, as in the uh, residential school situation. Rocky places that in the realm of murder. And so if you, if you think of it in terms of like morality, the morality of Jesus is, is higher than, superior to the, the morality of Moses. And so, yes, I do think that uh, the words of Jesus are superior to and more authoritative than the words of others in the scriptures. Plus, I don't think that you can really understand the scriptures until you come to grips with Jesus. As you read the words of Jesus in the gospels, you come uh, very quickly to understand the, the centrality of the theme that Jesus presents, and it's about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. He comes to present the good news of a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And whenever you uh, read scripture, whenever you or studying scripture, one of the very first things that is so important to do and will help you a lot is to ask yourself the question, what did this mean to the original hearers? What did this mean to the original audience? How did they hear it? What would this have meant to them? And if you think about the first century Jewish audience to whom Jesus is speaking, and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Think about every parable that Jesus told. The kingdom of God is like, the kingdom is like. This message of the kingdom, how would that have been heard by these first century Jewish hearers? Well, they certainly would have thought back to what they had understood about the kingdom of God as presented by the Old Testament prophets. Like they would have thought back to um, the prophet Isaiah, like Isaiah chapter 65, you begin at verse 17 there, and Isaiah the prophet is describing what the kingdom of God is like, and he says in the kingdom of God, um, uh, no children will die in infancy because they'll be well-fed. In the kingdom of God, Isaiah says, uh, old People will live out their years in, in, in wealth, in, in health rather, and well-being. Um, and the person who dies at 100 will be considered to have died too young. Isaiah goes on to describe the kingdom of God. He says, everybody in the kingdom of God will have a good house to live in. Nobody's going to be homeless. In the kingdom of God, Isaiah says, um, uh, people will have, will have good jobs and they'll be paid fairly for their work. In other words, there's not going to be any sweatshops in the kingdom of God. He goes on in Isaiah 65 to say that neither shall they hurt the earth anymore. It's really interesting. You read, when you read a passage like Isaiah 65 and the description of the kingdom, it kind of reads like Jesus. It's not particularly theological. It's a lot about a new social order, a new way of living. And you think about Jesus, how he taught his disciples to pray. Thy kingdom come. 
Thy will be done, where? On earth, as it is in heaven. When I was growing up, the gospel that I understood, the gospel that I received, I would say it was more about dying than it was about living. The gospel as I understood it and received it kind of went like this. You know, you need to receive Jesus as your savior um, so that your sins can be forgiven, so that when you die, you can go to heaven. The gospel was, was more about that. And you know what? That's true. Amen. That is absolutely true. But that is a very truncated gospel. That takes the gospel and, and turns it into a soundbite, turns it into um, uh, information. But you know, the message, the message of Jesus, the good news message of the kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim was not a message about dying. It was a message about living. You know, when you look at the words of Jesus in, in the Gospels, his message was not nearly so much about getting people ready for the next world as it was about recruiting and equipping people to live in this world according to the will of God. Think about the parables. I mentioned that a few minutes ago. The parables of Jesus. Uh, the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. It's about this new social order that Jesus wants to create. You know, Jesus came to... Um, he came to bring a revolution, a revolution that would end racism, that would end oppression, that would end poverty, that would end uh, injustice, that would end homelessness. And you know, you think about it, even in, in the, the book of Acts, like if you went back to chapter one, Jesus is with his guys, he, he's about to ascend and uh, the, Luke, as he writes the book of Acts, says that Jesus again talked to them about the things of the kingdom. It was like Jesus is about to leave. And, and it's as if he says, you know, guys, in case you didn't get it the first thousand times, let me tell you again the message of the kingdom. Jesus is coming back. And he's going to come back and that, that beautiful world... <laughs> where there's no war and no oppression and no injustice and no homelessness and no poverty and no racism, it will be fully realized. It will be fully actualized. When Jesus comes back, that kingdom will be fully, fully realized. But between now and then, we're to, we're to work toward that. We're to work toward those things. We're to press into these things as Jesus compels us from within this uh, you know, we talked about last week, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so the purpose of evangelism really is not so much about getting people ready for the next world, although it, it does, amen. But the purpose of evangelism is more about recruiting and equipping people to live now, here, now, and to do the work of the kingdom in this world. The early church, um, I'm, I'm out of time. So let me, let me close with this. The early church was, in Jerusalem was, was radical. It's not so much that they were radical, but they followed Jesus and Jesus was radical. This early church in Jerusalem turned their world upside down for Jesus. Can it be said of us 
Can it be said of Sabo Christian Fellowship that we are turning our world upside down for Jesus? You know, our mission statement is just over my shoulder. Can it be said of us that we are changing our world? Can it be said of you? Can it be said of me that we are changing our world? What would it look like for us, all of us? What would it look like for our church? What would it look like for your church? What would it look like for you and for me to press reset and to devote ourselves to taking the words of Jesus seriously? Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord Jesus, help us to cooperate with you in this incredible privilege of seeing your kingdom come on earth and building that kingdom. We know that when you come again, so much will remain undone, but you will complete everything that remains undone. We thank you for that. Help us as individual followers and as, um, as a church family together to hit that reset button and to commit ourselves to taking your words, Jesus, seriously. Amen. God bless.